Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rupert Pleasant, and as the new Chief Executive of Guernsey Finance, I'm delighted to be able to host my first event in our hot seat, all by, uh, sorry, all bit virtually, and welcome you to ILS Insight 2020. Normally at this time of year, we'd be in Zurich, interacting directly with the insurance-linked securities community from Switzerland and further afield. I expect, although we're not traveling today, our geographic reach might even be greater than usual. I know that our registrations for this event have come from 22 countries as far afield as South America, Southeast Asia, and so I hope this demonstrates the global reach of Guernsey's ILS sector. The global performance of the ILS industry in 2019 was, I think it could be said, satisfactory. An improvement on the last few years, but nowhere near the returns achieved by other asset classes. However, let's remember that ILS is primarily a diversification of asset class for an investment portfolio, and there is still strong demand for this line of investment. Guernsey also strongly believes in the ability of ILS to support disaster resilience and assisting those people facing the life-changing trauma of natural catastrophic events. Climate change has brought awareness um, of a need for protection for those people who do not have uh, insurance coverage. Policymakers are calling for a reduction of the protection gap as they anticipate increased damages stemming from climate-related natural catastrophes. And Guernsey's position in green and ESG, seeking to finance climate change solutions through innovations such as ILS and the Guernsey Green Fund, is increasingly important. And we will in explore that, amongst other issues, a little further in our panel discussion uh, a little later today. Just before I hand over to our moderator today, Steve Britton, Managing Director, Global ILS Management at Aon, I'll briefly address some features of our webinar platform. We will have a live Q&A today. You can submit your questions during the webinar using the widget on the screen, and we'll get around to answering as many as we can. We'll also have polls running during the session, so please do engage, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Some of our industry literature and sponsors' resources are available to download from the site, and you can revisit this event webpage from this platform. And if you want to react to us on social media, we'll be at WeAreGuernsey with the event hashtag GYISL20. But now I'll hand you over to Steve, and I look forward to an interesting discussion, and I'll see you again before we close. Over to you, Steve. Many thanks. Thank you, Rupert. It's absolutely my pleasure to moderate this webinar. I'd like to first thank We Are Guernsey and the Guernsey International Insurance Association, GIA, both who have worked hard to produce this outstanding ILS long-running event. This is the seventh edition. Um, normally, as uh, Rupert mentioned, we'd be in Zurich today on July 2nd. It's become one of my personal favorite global ILS events, and we all miss being there this time of year when the weather is perfect and Lake Zurich is beautiful. Um, I know that the Zurich-based ILS market participants say this is one event each year that truly brings the Zurich ILS market um, players together. So I wanted to recognize We Are Guernsey and GIA for their efforts and success here, and also thank the uh, Zurich ILS market. Although we're not in Zurich today, we didn't want July 2nd, 2020 to come and go without reaching out and providing an ILS update from Guernsey. Today we have the chance to hear from a panelist who will provide an update on how Guernsey is working with COVID-19 environment, and what have been the effects and potential trends as a result in the market, and how has Guernsey worked to differentiate itself in these areas and stay resilient? We will then change it up a little and we'll discuss and receive an update on environmental, social, governance, ESG investing. Super topical when you think about the world that we live in and not just thinking about making uh, money in our jobs, but thinking about the environment, social, and governance issues globally. We'll hear from one expert panelist in this area and, uh, and other panelists as well. Finally, with all going on, we haven't heard about Brexit lately, so we thought we'd talk about that and have the panelists give us an update or reminder here from Guernsey's perspective on Brexit and Solvency II as an independent Crown dependency. We'll then have the 10 to 15-minute Q&A that uh, Rupert mentioned. You, you, you viewers can submit your questions, and I'll do my best to relay them uh, those questions, um, although it looks like the screen here is a fighter, uh, a fighter pilot here. Um, during the webinar, there'll be two to three polling questions, as Rupert mentioned, I encourage you to vote, and I'll share those results with us as well. We hope that you will both ask questions and respond to the polls. With that said, let's begin and briefly introducing the panelists and then jump into the topics. Um, with me today, I have Adele Gale. Adele is head of uh, ILS at Robus Group, one of Guernsey's leading insurance management, fiduciary financial advisor groups. Adele joined Robus in February this year to lead the relaunch of their ILS practice. 
Next, I have Hector Ibarra. Hector is the CEO of Global Parametrics, a firm comprising a team of global experts in natural disaster risk mitigation, and who specializes in financial resilience and recovery for emerging economies through data and innovative financial products. Then I have Yuta Kath. Yuta is head of transaction management at Schroeder Sequero, a leading global ILS uh, investor fund based in Zurich. Originally Sequero Advisors since 2019, it's now wholly owned by Schroeder's global asset management company. And finally, I have Richard Sharp, who is partner and head of insurance and reinsurance practice for the Guernsey office of Vidal Kristen, a leading international law firm. Panelists, with that, let's jump right into it. And with the first topic that we want to talk about, what impact has COVID-19 had on servicing ILS business from Guernsey? Um, Yuta, I know that you uh, at, at Sequero Schroeder Sequero are a user of the market in Guernsey um, to provide services to your platform. Maybe we can start with you and just let us know how you think Guernsey's done in servicing business during COVID-19. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, let me ask, uh, answer the question. It's a very quick response to that question. Um, that would say, Guernsey never missed a beat when it came to servicing during this very difficult time. Um, but let me be a bit more detailed. Um, all the Guernsey employees were sent home with company uh, laptops, and we could immediately connect to them. And we are via the phone numbers that, quite honestly, I even know by heart. Um, that was extremely important for us because we were at that time were entering the second most important renewal of the year, the June and July renewals, and the Asia renewal was in full swing. And as Schroeder's very high standards when it comes to uh, assessing our uh, service providers, and we had did numerous tests, but this was the real test, and there were never any issues. And what I found a bit over the top, uh, I had to write a daily email to Guernsey and check whether everything is uh, uh, still all right and whether we experience any issues. And uh, after a while, I felt, um, what else am I supposed to say then other than it works well? So again, that's why I'm saying you never miss the beat and we are very happy with uh, how you could service us. Thank you, Yuta. What, what about Richard? you have a comment on that, how, how uh, Guernsey's been servicing ILS business during COVID? Um, yeah, as, as a, I mean, the question I'm often asked is what was Guernsey's response um, as an island to it? I'm not sure that's quite the right way to look at it. I think it's testament to the island that um, the infrastructure we have here was, was already very well prepared in a lot of ways, but what we did do is we were able to adapt um, and be flexible in, in those areas that, that it needed to change a little. Um, so in terms of provision, um, Guernsey Law has always allowed for board meetings to be held um, by telephone or video conferencing. Um, it allowed for the appointment of alternative directors and for boards to use resolutions in place of board meetings. So that, that's always been there as a background. But the three areas we, we really were good in was electronic transactions. So as, as a general rule, Guernsey's always allowed its companies and structures to sign documents electronically. Um, we've had an electronic transactions law in place since 2000, which provides a statutory that. Uh, we have our substantial insurance industry and uh, back in March, uh, Business Association circulated further guidance to assist local structures um, in relation to how they might operate in, in response to challenges due to the pandemic. Um, this was published after consultation with the Jersey Revenue Service. Um, it provided quite a useful in where you couldn't comply with six rules, um, you, you should record where, where that wasn't why, and then revert back to the normal procedures in due course. There was also a helpful reminder in there that um, the useful term directors here on the island may provide us to. Um, what else we need? Well, our, our regulator, the Guernsey Financial Services. Um, it's operated an online portal for admissions for, for a number of time. Uh, and that, that particularly doesn't come up. My experience, I believe most people, is that the 
um, they were respectful in ending submission dates in relation to returns and provision accounts. Um, they also had a in applications. So it all goes to show that um, we generally had a framework that enables where there were areas we could improve. Each of the bottom did step up and found So I, th I think that's very important. As you said, you know, I love the fact that I, you can assign things electronically. I think that's always important. I think the way that Guernsey reacted to uh, substance requirements and, and allowing some flexibility there um, really aided uh, Guernsey being responsive. Um, Adele, from a service provider perspective, maybe you could talk about, um, add to what, add a little bit to what Richard said about maybe GFSC responsiveness or how service providers generally adapted during COVID. I mean, I think really to Yutta's point, it was sort of business as usual. Um, most service providers on the island, um, Robus included, had uh, laptops already in place for all staff. So, um, you know, we enacted our business continuity plans generally across the office and, and carried on as normal. And that extends to the regulator as well, who were um, also continuing to process applications and uh, you know, interact as you'd expect through the, through the period. Absolutely. I mean, that's key. I think from a service provider's perspective, clients just expect you to do your job. And I think that's uh, that was borne out that that's what Guernsey did. Well, you know, maybe moving away from the servicing level, what about um, the impact of COVID-19 on the ILS market generally at the macro level and how potential COVID claims are affecting ILS performance, investor sentiment, future ILS business growth, et cetera? Um, and maybe, you know, we could go back to you. What generally is investor sentiment around COVID? Uh, particularly regarding potential claims um, and uh, maybe rate hardening? Well, in, in anticipation of investors' questions, we reviewed our entire call we, um, portfolio. And we have a variety of contracts uh, in our portfolio, starting with very high access uh, cat covers with named perils all the way to quota shares. And uh, also the latter part is very small in our portfolio. And... And when you start with uh, the uh, claims review, I mean, key is the wording. And like, for example, even if you have a named perils cover that gives you a whole list of perils and then says included but not limited to, um, it still need, needs a uh, natural peril to qualify as a covered um, um, claim. So there's a long way from a hurricane to a meteorite impact all the way to uh, COVID-19, and you need a physical loss. So when you have named peril, be it in a coal re portfolio or in a bond, we are way out. So that's comforting. And even if you have something like... Uh, if, if BI is covered, business interruption is covered, you still need a physical loss. And uh, lastly, what we saw um, at the very beginning, you had a lot of uh, coverage on the attempt to retroactively cover BI in uh, insurance or reinsurance. And that has quieted down, I would say. So what happens next now in order to be able to uh, provide information to investors is you need to have a constant dialogue with seedens to understand how they approach it, how, um, how well they understand their portfolio. And this is especially true in quota share covers. So that's what we've been doing uh, in order to collate the information and feed that back to our investors. And so naturally they had questions, naturally they were concerned, but uh, things have somewhat uh, quieted down. And then we have this constant dialogue that I just described. And um, just a general uh, remark on, on uh, contract review. I mean, we always do this carefully, if, if, no matter what the, the, the issue is. And uh, later, this also applies to notifications. So if I get a, a seed and who tells me, well, because I feel like it and I might have exposure, I just hold the money back. Uh, that's not a good enough explanation. And so... Um, this is what we'll do as a next step once we have uh, the full picture, once we continue to look at the picture, look at those notifications very, very carefully. Um, that's, that sounds great. Um, um, next, guys on the panel, do you consider that COVID claims will result in increased trapping of collateral? And how will this affect the future of a collateralized IS market? And maybe Adele, from an insurance manager perspective, how are, how are you coping with the issues of trapped collateral? And 
And and what is what advantages does this give an ILS fund? I mean, I think absolutely there will be trapped collateral, and I think people are already talking about the collateral that will be trapped around the um, 1 January renewals. Um, and I think Guernsey has a number of um, regulatory uh, uh, um, positions which it has it made very clear and which kind of allow great deal of certainty around um, collateral release and the, and the framework of that and how renewals work. Um, from a service provider um, point of view, I think it's about being incredibly proactive. So um, taking part in the contract review process and ensuring that we're on the same page with the fund manager that sponsors the, the vehicle against the ILS platform. Because I think we've been in a situation where um, rates, the market has been soft, uh, contract wordings have perhaps been difficult to achieve um, at the position we want to achieve them, and and so perhaps the collateral release provisions aren't quite to be, and we're now going into a market where the pressure to redeploy capital is greater than ever to, to capitalise on those on that tactic. And so I think um, having a proactive insurance manager that understands the the kind of um, the process that the seeding goes through to release capital and the risks around uh, contract word not being very tight around the, the obligations under the uh, reinsurance contract and the trust agreement to ensure that you don't have a situation where money is being recalled by the seeding. Um, you, you really need to be aware of those risks and, and sort of proactive in your approach to release collateral. Um, Guernsey's generally Guernsey's regulatory regime has three uh, USPs, if you like. Um, we have a 30-day rollover provision, which is actually stipulated by the regulator, and um, it recognises that sometimes it's difficult to get collateral in place immediately at the 1st of January, for instance. And the the regulator has allowed for 30 days, really, for for administrative purposes to get to ensure that collateral can be, can, the trust accounts can be opened and collateral can be um, properly deployed into that trust account. And, and that's something that requires negotiation with the cedent, obviously, and the cedent's full agreement. And we need to ensure that there is liquidity in the fund to provide that collateral in due course. But it gives um, a little around the renewal dates, which I think is um, a, a great certainty in, in sort of an uncertain market. Um, the provision for uh, contingent capital, so um, perhaps less applicable here to the collateralized market, but um, perhaps, you know, if a reinstatement is requested, you can uh, look at different ways of capitalizing an ILS selling Guernsey to allow for that reloading on a second loss through partly paid shares and contingent capital. So, you know, that's, again, another great way to um, allow flexibility in the negotiation between the sedent and the ILS fund manager um, with, with the transformer vehicle being a a part of that. And, and thirdly, um, we do allow clawbacks in Guernsey and, um, you know, that can lead to difficult conversations, um, but it, it's about really understanding the risk upfront when a contract's being negotiated and um, the, the Guernsey transformer vehicle understanding the exposure to potential clawbacks and ensuring that the fund manager is able to um, top up and reload the trust account in a situation where a cedent perhaps releases funds and then uh, takes advantage of clauses within the contract to claw back that collateral. So I think Guernsey is generally in a really um, strong position around ensuring the certainty on what the regulator thinks is acceptable and what they don't think is acceptable. And there is um, sufficient wiggle room in that to make business really possible and achievable and, um, and kind of easy to do. And, you know, I think also the um, sort of sophistication and experience of the insurance managers in the island and their understanding of the risks around um, early release of collateral uh, does also support a fund manager in making those initial contract negotiations up front and also the negotiations around collateral release um, once you get to the end of the contract. It's super well said, Adele. I, th I think you touched on all the key points around the 30-day collateral ro rollover, partly paid shares, uh, how, how clawback is allowed, um, and reinstatements. Um, and um, I want to maybe throw that back over to Richard and you to give some comments or draw out some any of the other th those points. But before we before I do that, Richard and Utah, maybe we could. I saw the poll results were up there a little bit earlier. Maybe we could throw the, the first poll results up there one more time. It was just asking how much uh, will COVID-19 claims affect the future of the collateralized ILS market? 
and uh, it will have a major impact, 22%, and will have a minor impact, 23%. So those are two opposing views right there. Um, you guys need to, to meet in the pubs later tonight uh, to see um, and argue that one out. But the, the majority of the people, 50%, says it will take some time before the full impact is realized. It still is definitely a, a period of a, a uncertainty. There's no question about that. Um, but I think, you know, Guernsey's done such a good a job to kind of try to build flexibility for investors around renewal dates and the issues of uh, rollover and trap collateral and clawback um, while, while remaining robust um, as a jurisdiction and making sure it's done properly. Richard, do you want to just talk about that any, anymore? And, and maybe Utah, you can, you can uh, jump into um, uh, uh, your experience with that as well using Guernsey. I think you've, you've put it perfectly, Steve, that, that the word I was going to use is, is, is flexibility, but it's that controlled flexibility. Um, so it, 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 it's, it, it's got that um, checks and safeguards behind it to make sure that it, it fully functions. That, that, that was the point I was going to emphasise, which, 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 you, which you made. Good. And you, Tom? Yeah, on then this uh, topic of clawback, I mean, we have had uh, these discussions before, so it's not entirely new. And um, what we do as a first step before we even get down to, to a clawback or potential clawback situation, we carefully analyze and, uh, the, the contract and uh, make sure that we don't release more than we feel comfortable with. So you try as a first priority to even avoid to get into this situation in the first place. But then we also can give uh, the additional comfort to Sedens uh, that it is possible as uh, Adele outlined in Gersey. So that is it's just another safety net to uh, assure a proper process. But for me, um, what you do in the first place on your monthly valuation is, is a key uh, aspect in the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely correct. And Adele also pointed out the fact that, you know, have really good communication up front when the, when the contracts are written, that the wording's um, correct. You want to give the students a lot of comfort um, so that they don't trap collateral unnecessarily. Um, and, of course, dialogue is, is key to that, but also having a a, a, I guess kind of a structure in the jurisdiction that allows those um, that, that flexibility to have those discussions and, and, and figure it out. Um, we, we wanted to um, now change it up a little bit um, and turn to a number, another topical subject of ESG. Um, Hector, I wanted to throw that over to you and maybe to start before you give us a high level um, overview to set the scene and provide a more nuanced view around ILS for ESG. Um, if you have any comments on COVID claims and how they're affecting, or how COVID is generally affecting your ability to design and bring new risk into the marketplace, or if a hard market may, well, might make this more difficult for developing nations to access the insurance markets, maybe you could comment on that briefly on COVID. But then would love to have you just turn, um, you know, introduce the ESG topic from your perspective to the, to the viewers. Thanks, Steve. I think on your first question, I will say that we as a company deal mostly with first-time buyers in emerging markets. So when you're trying to, to help these institutions to consider risk transfer alternatives to help their contingent uh, capital needs or, or emergency response, uh, when you're in a crisis mode, usually you don't have the luxury of thinking that much ahead in terms of planning. So a lot of the proactive agendas in terms of resilience and risk management get challenged. We're expecting that in the long term they will come back as a priority, but it's just that there is the lack of capacity to add this dimension and also even lack of capacity to pay and commit money for premium. So I think for us on the origination side, we see a lot of changes in how institutions are prioritizing to hedge the risks uh, to natural disasters. On your second question on ESG, I think uh, I would like to take just a couple of minutes to provide co a context that is very important of how global parametric fits into the social impacts investment space, because it's kind of a, a unique company in the sense that it was seeded with capital from the German and British governments. And the reason why that's relevant in the ESG context is by definition, Global Parametrics was founded uh, with, with public seeded money to be a, 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 
uh, a change maker, a market maker in risk transfer opportunities in emerging markets. So to be able to get the support of two of the most prestigious international organizations in the world, you need to address a fear of change. It's not an obvious to say, oh, ESG nice. Uh, we, we look at generic statement, but we had to address very difficult questions. What do you want to achieve when you do risk transfer? Well, like, what is your impact in capital flows to emerging markets? What is your impact on emergency relief organizations? What is your impact in social protection agendas? So we were forced to, to think about and articulate what are we trying to achieve as an industry when, when we're trying to make risk transfer instruments available in emerging markets. And we have a corporate governance structure that monitors that. And I guess the reason why I want to bring this up today is because I, I have seen a lot of very relevant CEOs from asset managers make very strong statements in recent months about what they consider an, an ESG framework that is very, very uh, neutral or, or even retrospectively looking at what have been done in the past, and there's a lot of emphasis on now on more like a true impact impact framework where people are more proactive, and they can we as an industry go beyond the product discussion of what insurance is and what the product. But we focus on what insurance can achieve for for these uh, more vulnerable groups in the world. So as an industry, I think this idea of moving from a traditional ESG framework is an important challenge, and hopefully we can we can step to it. No, thank, thank you, Hector, for that. I think it's um, it, just in this time, I know we all have busy jobs and, and, and we love the, working in the ILS space and it does provide a value to the world um, economy for providing backstop when there are natural catastrophes and other events that cause people um, losses. Um, but if we can, in the ILS space, you know, add to that, you know, a social aspect and make sure we're, we're aware of the environment, social and governance issues around our investing, I, I, I think it makes will make our ILS market so much more robust. But um, you, you, maybe going back to you, Utah, first, and then we'll go, go to um, Richard and Adele. But from an investor perspective, Utah, um, what is investors, ILS investor sentiment on ESG compliance and asset allocation and greenwashing issues, those issues? Mm -hmm. um I mean, as short as we are in the process of developing a framework uh, that provides a credible strategy to the topic, and uh, that's what Hector already mentioned, uh, we try to be um, to have a, a, a wider view on the, on the topic. And we want to make sure that the products that we offer are not greenwashed or for the sake of just being in the field. Um, and that's very important to our investors. You need a credible approach. Um, however, I would also like to point out that the ILS market is already uh, supportive of um, certain activities in the field. We don't need to wait for, for more, but we need to be a con have to a concise framework. But we already support uh, certain bonds, uh, funds by the World Bank or certain covers for flood. I mean, I'm just flat smart we comes to mind. And it's not just about the so-called developing world. There are also insurance gaps in, in other parts, like especially in the U.S. Every time we, we have a major hurricane, you see that. Um, but for me, ESG has two components. There's this external view in terms of what we offer to our investors and investors are seeking these kind of products. Um, but there's also an internal view. And I had a conversation with my 20-year-old daughter uh, about the subject. And in conclusion, she, she said, well, so you're trying to make sure you're not, you're not seen to do any window dressing. So you're careful about the products that you put on display in your shop. But what about the, the shop itself and the people who work there? Um, don't you apply the same kind of standards to that shop? And, well, that gave me the opportunity to explain. Um, we have a number of activities when it comes to our own dealings. Um, we, we try to make uh, offices carbon neutral. Um, we just um, provided corporate funding to COVID-19 victims. There was a wide um, campaign throughout the entire company and everyone contributed. And you also have just uh, just completed um, uh, uh, the um, 
Pride Month in June. So we talk a lot about um, inclusion and diversity. And then when I reflected, uh, reflected on that uh, further, I thought, well, and this is my personal opinion, um, I strongly believe that in our industry, we still have a long way to go to get, become truly ESG compliant. There's still uh, a fair amount of discrimination going on, be it age, race, and gender, or any combination thereof. And hence, the, for me, the ESG journey has started, but we still have a long way to go. No, absolutely. And I think this is where investors in the ILS marketing can really make a difference. I think of some of the original investors in the space, um, and I don't mean to put any investors in there. We have super investors in our ILS market, but I think of people like Fairmat uh, or, or Nafella who, you know, spent time in Washington, D.C. on these issues. You know, Hector worked at the World Bank. Um, and um, and then the issues that you talked about, um, Yuda, are, are super important. So I think if the ILS market can keep that in mind, it would be super helpful. Um, Richard and Adele, maybe I can turn to you to draw more detail around Richard first, maybe what Guernsey is doing as a jurisdiction level in the ESG space. And then Adele, when Richard's done, maybe um, you can talk about what, what is Guernsey's insurance industry doing um, and where is it heading? Yeah, sure, Steve. Um, it's, it's probably worth me just outlining what, what Guernsey's approach in, in, in the ESG space is. So, we, we have a strategic initiative, um, which we, we call Guernsey Green Finance. Um, um, I think it's well recognised that to meet international targets for, for, for climate change reduction, there's going, to be need, there's going to be a need for a huge amount of investment in this area. Um, combined with that, we're also seeing investors who, through personal preference or through restrictions in their investment mandates, are, are actually looking to invest in in areas that, in addition to the usual financial return, also provide some um, ESG um, positive outcome as well. Um, and as a responsible member of the global community, Guernsey is looking to put in place a, a, a framework um, that supports those offers products that, that that enable investors to to achieve their aims as well. Um, so Guernsey Green Finance is the, the umbrella framework for Guernsey's offering in this area. Um, and it, it comprises a number of things. Um, so, for example, there's Guernsey's first green fund, um, which is the world's first regulated um, investment fund product in, in the green space. Um, essentially, it uses Guernsey's existing funds regime and offering. Um, and... Uh, in addition to that, the funds are required to comply with a, with a set of uh, Guernsey Green Fund rules, which ensure that um, it's not just greenwashing, that there is uh, a, a genuine green or, green or ESG aim under that. Um, in addition, we have um, our local exchange, our local stock exchange, the International Exchange, has a green segment. Um, whereby it offers issuers the chance to draw their attention to their green credentials. Again, these credentials are independently verified, and it gives uh, investors a, 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 a safe, independently verified way to invest in, in, in these products. Um, what else do we have? We, we have green insurance. So I, I know Adele's going to talk a little bit more about this, but this is something our regulator is, 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 is very keen to, to, um, to, to look for possibilities in what it can do in, in terms of providing um, flexibility on solvency and other regulatory issues um, for investments in this area. Um, just to pick up on something Yuta uh, said um, in relation to um, not just having the products, but having the players in our market, having everyone who's a stakeholder in, in, in Guernsey's finance sector um, living and breathing um, ESG and, and, and green. One example is our, 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 our regulator has, a, has a, an intention, a confirmed statement to, to, to aim to be one of the first carbon neutral regulators in the world. So I think there's buying... No, I thought that was super well said, Richard. I was just thinking about what you said about living and breathing the ethos um, of, of ESG to, to really make it expand. Adele, maybe before we um, throw it over to you, what about the survey question, the poll question that we had on this topic? Can we throw that up on the screen before we 
So is there potential for ILS to have an environmental, social, governance, ESG credentials? Um, so 40% strongly agree, 55% uh, agree. So over, overwhelmingly, uh, people agree that ILS can um, do a better job or look towards, um, you know, risk of that, you know, are socially conscious and, and talk about the environment as well. Take those into consider, consideration. Adele, what specifically is the Guernsey insurance industry doing in the ESG space? Where's it, where's it headed from, from that side? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the Guernsey insurance industry recognises our place in the ILS value chain. You know, as you say, I, I, and as the poll um, poll clearly shows, ILS has got the potential. Um, to, it's predisposed as an asset class to be um, chosen by investors, which are looking to meet their own ESG agendas. And Guernsey really is is aiming to be as proactive as possible in. Um, facilitating fund managers to meet their own ESG agendas. So um, it's all, it is about independent verification and about um, ensuring that there's really validity and that we are living and breathing ESG. Um, the Guernsey Insurance Industry Body has um, signed up as a supporting institute of the, of the United Nations Principles for Sustainable Insurance Initiative. So that's really a global framework for the insurance industry to explore um, and address environmental and social risks and, and and the opportunities that arise from from those. Um, we're also working on a framework to develop a kite mark, which our ILS platforms could apply for, and um, that would that would create a kind of independently verifiable uh, badge, which um, can be can really demonstrate uh, that ESG. Um, credentials are at the heart of what is being done. And, and that's driven by the insurance management industry, really, living and breathing. So, so ensuring that the registered office where your ILS platform is located is as carbon neutral as it can be, that travel is considered, that, um, that really the insurance managers are doing a, a thorough review of their own choices and their own um, impact on the environment and the community and, and living and breathing the, the ESG agenda, which is so important to investors and so important to us as individuals. Um, and, and I think, yeah, it, it's really, we're just trying to be as proactive as possible and to assist our clients um, in achieving their own agendas. Well, absolutely. So um, I wanted to ask Hector, um, given his specialty on this, um, how can jurisdictions such as Guernsey play a part in promoting a framework which helps to support ESG compliant ILS transactions. And uh, Hector, can I can I ask you that question, realizing that you know it, it takes a kind of a leap of faith by investors to jump into this space. Definitely, you know, charities and governments need to bring risk, and you know, service providers like Adele need to to uh, be you know efficiently service it. But is there anything else that uh, jurisdictions such as Guernsey um, can do to help promote ESG? Probably, I'll try to answer in, in, in two dimensions. The first dimension is on, the, on your capacity to to vet the, what, what the industry is labeling as ESG and uh, uh, partnering with organizations that have a clearly articulated theory of change and agenda about what they're trying to achieve with your products. And maybe you can achieve that maybe through an advisory board that has experience in the internal health development agenda that has an opinion and gives a little bit of validity uh, of, of the, the theories of change of the actors that are trying to have an impact. So that's one way. The second one that is uh, more challenging is how do you measure that impact when, 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 when you're, you're, you're introducing insurance into environments where you're trying to create a secondary effect. So insurance is trying to facilitate something. It can be a, a, a better emergency relief uh, uh, program. It can be a, a more solvent microfinance uh, network. You're trying to create resilience in the social actors. And that is difficult for the islands to do it alone. And there are protocols around, for example, the issue of resilience secretariat laid by Germany was trying to bring the insurance industry and being able to debate about how to monitor this indirect impacts that are not so easy. So I think I think currency alone is going to be difficult that they address the credibility of how you monitor. That's why it's important to create these coalitions of, of, of uh, interest where people are looking seriously at creating the, the credibility to this ESG. And I would say 
even more social impact uh, uh, agendas that the investors are are uh, interested in supporting. Mm -hmm. And that's that's super. I think you know both from an ILS perspective of in providing insurance uh, before the event and then providing access to quick capital after the event, especially in emerging markets, is key. So appreciate all the comments there. I can see that there's one more poll question up for the for the viewers to respond to. Can impact investing work with ILS? Please respond to that. Um, just looking at the clock and timing, wanted to get uh, allow some um, good time for Q and A. But um, no one's mentioned Brexit lately. Um, given all that's going on in the world right now, but I thought it'd be good for um, to get just get an update um, uh, in relation to currency panelists. Um, you know what is going on there with respect to Brexit and sovereignty too. Just update us and remind the viewers where currency stands here. Richard, maybe I can turn that one to you. Yeah, sure. And I think my message is it, it's one of reassurance. Um, Nothing, nothing has changed, and nothing will change with Brexit for Guernsey. Um, Guernsey has been a third country in relation to the EU, and that won't change as a result of Brexit. Um, so what this means is it's obviously very important to Guernsey because we're a significant exporter of financial services to the EU and, and to the UK after Brexit, and will continue to be so. Um, the basis on which we provide those services is that we are meeting the requirements in, 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 in the EU member states and the UK in any event. So um, in one sentence, Bre Brexit won't change anything for, for, for in that respect. Um, we'll continue to be um, a stable existing platform and hopefully it'll provide a lot of opportunities for us. Okay, th thanks for that. Um, why don't we turn to uh, Q&A. Um, Audience, definitely please ask any questions. I see a couple of questions have come up here. Um, one does um, is in respect to um, ESG um, compliance, and I think I think in some degrees we just answered it. But maybe um, this question was: What frameworks and metrics are the ILS fund industry using to guide ESG compliance? So maybe uh, um, Hector, Richard, Adela, um, Ayuta. What frameworks and metrics are the ILS fund industry using currently to help guide ESG compliance or development and growth? I can I can tackle it first, and then I think other colleagues want to comment. I think for now the industry has been using the, the metric of beneficiaries, direct or indirect. So if you look at the communicate of the issue resilience uh, uh, target of 500 million new direct or indirect beneficiaries, there's they're using an estimate of the beneficiaries because it, it's, a, it's an easier metric to, to address. But as I mentioned uh, in my earlier intervention, there's a working group uh, between the international development agencies and the insurance industry to look more carefully about how to monitor these indirect effects. As I was mentioning, the complexity on a lot of this is, is for example, when you're, you're creating a, a, an impact that goes beyond the insurance industry, you have to rely on third-party sectors or partners to be able to monitor that. So you need to expand your network that goes beyond the insurance. So it's not trivial to be able to monitor these indirect effects, but people are discussing about how to best do it. So that's why for now, the metric that I have seen mostly uh, uses beneficiaries and estimation most of the time. And I, th I think from Guernsey's perspective, we're, we're looking to really build a framework you know, that fits with our outsourced service model and and that allows RLS platforms, which don't have employees of their own, to um, you know, register their own impact on the environment against an internationally credible set of criteria, which is independently awarded based on the legitimate effort towards meeting those agendas. Okay. And Yuta, from, what, from your perspective as an investor, do you have... Um, Frameworks or metrics in place currently, or is that something you're developing internally? It is uh, it's a major. Uh, it is the development process right now, but we are working with um, accreditation um, type uh, criteria. And as I, as I think it also came up already, um, Adele mentioned it. Uh, this is also about credibility. Uh, you need to make sure that whatever you do there uh, is not just made up because you want to uh, to offer something. And um, so it, it is. We are in the process of of, of uh, completing that, but we are not that yet uh, there yet because we, it's really dear to our heart to be a credible, a credible player in the market. 
Yeah. And uh, one of our one of our um, viewers had just made a comment, not really a question, just stating, you know, kind of the point that customers and compliant clients are calling out for sensible kite marks to know what they are buying and supporting. So it's not just greenwashing. Um, and the comment was that it's something that the FS industry needs to work on. So you probably can agree to agree on that. Um, and then there's another question related to ESG too um, here. How how would Guernsey's commitment to green finance possibly be affected by COVID-19 at all? Do you guys think that COVID-19 would have an impact on Guernsey's commitment to the green finance area? Adele or Richard, do you have any? I think if anything, we would our commitment because the impact that we as service providers have on our communities is is really brought to the fore when you're in a pandemic situation and the ability to pull together as a community is is really the question you know whether the pandemic spreads or not so for me it, it only reinforces the urgency and and the real legitimate and credible reason for um moving towards a more esg friendly um and a way of making decisions and living and breathing at work you know so for me, for me, they're um, complementary. I, I I would agree with that, Steve. I, I think um, one of the features of um, the challenges that the pandemic's thrown up is is everyone is assessing um, their footprint, how they work, their practice, how their industry operates, and I think um, it, it's it's been a, a timely focus on those kind of issues um, at, at the time of of the introduction of our. Guernsey Green Initiative as well. I, I think that the two are, are complementary almost. I think it has, it, it's really focused people's minds on these issues um, and, and brought them to the fore, as Adele says. Okay, good. There's another question here that says, um, a key attraction of ILS instruments are the nature of which their returns are uncorrelated with financial markets. We know that's why the ILS market is, um, is not gonna go away. It's just gonna get bigger and bigger. It's uncorrelated, and if it pays a positive, positive expected return, it's going to grow. That's my comment added to this question. The question is, does provision of risk capital through ILS-type structures for pandemic and other more correlated exposures not just decrease the attractiveness of these returns to investors? Um, and you know, clearly, if you talk, if you think about the principles of insurance, typically it's the it's the many paying a, a small premium to pay the large losses of a few. And pandemic is not um, maybe a you know maybe insurance principles don't work for that. But Yuda, from an from an investor perspective, what are your thoughts on the ILS market being able to in the future uh, provide maybe certain pandemic covers, maybe similar to flood covers? Um, I, I think that there's a, there's constant need for that, and um, I think we've just going through a, a mass experiment that how it, we look at all the uh, implications. Probably some things people haven't thought uh, through, but I think um, generally, whenever we had a major incident in this industry, it triggered new solutions. If you look back to uh, Andrew, or you look at 9/11. It it help, it it forced people to think further and beyond of what they envisioned at the start. And I think we will see the same thing with the pandemic. Make uh, some some two um, like truly working covers, and then you also can uh, uh, transfer that to the uh, risk capital market. So, I think this is not the end. This is the start of of thinking wider. And uh, I think going back to your earlier point, it definitely proved that ILS is playing a role in this and will play a consist uh, constant role in the future. Mm -hmm. Hector, there's one question here I thought I might throw back to you. Um, it talks about, are there potential ILS solutions? Well, to all of the panelists, um, are there potential ILS solutions to address the raising risks the rising risk in emerging markets. If so, can you please elaborate on how Guernsey can play a role in this? You said is the question uh, referring to rising risk in emerging markets, or maybe may referring to climate change? Yeah. Should I interpret? It well, could, could be, but I, I definitely think... the question's about the question is definitely about rising risk in emerging markets, uh, whether it be climate change or other, and how can ILS help? 
How, are there potential ILS solutions? And if so, how can Guernsey play a role? I think it, it, that question uh, should, should be linked to the idea of what is missing in emerging markets to make uh, ILS structures work. And usually you, you can look at uh, different components. One of some of them are related to data and science. A lot of the uh, a lot of the areas of the world that are uh, where vulnerabilities growing, you have usually lack of data. So you need to to be very best in in bringing the best science and trying to come to uh, representation of the risk that will be suitable to do risk transfers. Data is important. The second important element is the structuring part. How you turn the data into a relevant impact uh, metric that ILS can provide cover to You're not talking about countries where they're protecting a big asset concentration. They're mostly talking about uh, supporting solvency of institutions, emergency relief. So you need to have these actors that can translate data into impact into a meaningful way. Um, you need to have risk capital that is supportive of innovative structures and innovative uh, models because a lot of these areas of the world do not have a track record of models. So you need flexibility from the risk capital to innovation. You have the regulatory angle. A lot of these countries are limiting the type of covers they can buy or they have very uh, uh, primitive insurance frameworks and it's very costly to transfer risk to, to the ILS market. Uh, and you have also sometimes taxation. So it, it is a complex that have different elements, probably difficult to cover in a conversation of 45 minutes. But all I can say is that it's an ecosystem of institutions like global parametrics that are working on all these segments and trying to create global standards. So there are opportunities for the markets to transfer both NAFCAT and water risks. Anything to add, other panelists, on that question? Um, I would take one for a step further. I mean, at, at Schroeders, we in ILS are part of the pri private asset management group. And that means we also have colleagues that deal with other types of products. And one of that springs to mind is microfinancing. And there's a, even like we have a specific company for that. And I think we will have a a stronger uh, dialogue between those various disciplines under this roof of private asset that will help us to come up with ILS uh, solutions to bring them into those um, uh, developing markets. Lot, hey, lots of questions coming in too, guys, and I want to get to these as well. A <laughs> couple of tough ones I'm, <laughs> I'm ignoring for the second, but uh, um, I'll come back to it. But there's one question here, how can ILS structures evolve um, post-COVID to manage the risk of trap capital. Um, I think we talked earlier about how Guernsey is addressing those issues of communication and flexibility. But to that end, what specific competitive advantage, I think want to give Guernsey a chance to talk here, what specific competitive advantage does Guernsey offer ILS market participants over other domiciles? And I don't, don't necessarily want to talk about, specifically about other domiciles, what they do, but what maybe just remind people here, uh, Richard and Adele, what specific competitive advantage you think Guernsey has? I think um, I think it goes back to the points I made before on um, the 30-day rollover provisions, the um, ability to have clawbacks and the um, and, and the ability to, to have contracts with reinstatement provisions in them. I think uh, Guernsey is ideally placed to allow um, sort of educated and um, and well-informed view of what's possible and what's not possible, because our regulator is is very clear in um, in setting out what they expect fully collateralized looks like and what they expect um, how they expect a renewal to be conducted. Um, so, I, I think those are really the, you know Guernsey's continued USPs in in that in that area of track collateral. But I would reiterate that it, it's really all about. Um, contract negotiation, you know, the, the inception of the contract, and, and where you have a really strong relationship with a fund manager and
the, a real active part in negotiating the contract wordings around collateral release and a clear understanding of, of what, um, you know, when the sedent is prepared to release collateral and there is pot potentially exposure continuing, um, it's really important to, to have that really open dialogue with a fund manager keen to redeploy capital and a transformer vehicle that's perhaps concerned about um, calls to reload the trust account and the potential mismatch in, um, the, in the obligations and the, and the legal obligations of that transformer to be able to to um, refund reload that trust account so I think it's um, you know Guernsey is ideally placed for those types of um, conversations but it, it's it's really at the contract inception rather than now when we're facing the issues that um, the conversations probably need to happen and and certainly um, you know sh should and, and I'm, I know often do happen at, at the inception. Hey, let, let me let me throw one question back to Hector um, about ESG. Then we'll then we'll um, move off ESG for a second. But it says, does ESG necessarily apply primarily to primary insurance, reinsurance, and index products only because of transparency issues? And I know Hector, you mentioned the issue of data and just you know having enough data to do the deals in some emerging markets. So the question is, is retro indemnity um, even possible in an ESG construct? With the market level of transparency, I mean, probably I have a biased perspective to that question because I mostly work on parametric. So by the, by working only on on, on parametric deals, you're building a, an independent uh, reporting framework that that uh, facilitates the structuring, the pricing, and the monitoring of these contracts in emerging markets. So by definition, working in parametric is, is trying to address the issue of, of the challenges that you just addressed. So when you work in parametric in, in, these, in these areas of the world, you try to take care of data, data integrity, data consistency, data availability, uh, and that helps, helps to, to uh, so even if you are getting into uh, retrocession or transforming actions, you still can protect the integrity of the transaction while, while you can monitor the, the outcomes that, that, that were uh, mapped into the original, the original agreement with the, with the protection buyer. But I can see why in other more traditional insurance lines that might be a, a more challenging issue. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said. And even um, when we think about COVID claims and how BI could come in and whether governments might you know, include those, which would, would not be the correct answer. Uh, that was not the intent of the parties when they, when they did the contracts to provide BI for a pandemic type cover. Um, but you know, parametric always is a solution. Maybe we'll see more parametric deals come back a little bit because then you just have a trigger and uh, it's, it's not a question of, uh, if it's not, it, it, it speaks to specifically to what loss you're, you're trying to cover. Hey, one question that also came up, guys, this is a more general question, uh, panelists. What is your outlook on ILS capacity and demand from buyers post-COVID? ILS capacity and demand post-COVID from buyers. Utah, maybe from your perspective, you can start. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, there will be more. Uh, I mean, there is definitely demand. Um, and the question for me is then about how do you make sure that you have uh, contractual provisions in place that they can be met? I think it's something, uh, I'm referring back to what Adele said, it's about the contract negotiation and making sure that those uh, needs are met on either side. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, on the uh, um, capital pro uh, provider, the, the investor, wants uh, also be able to uh, re uh, reinvest. But then also on, on the seeding side, you have certain uh, needs to, to for protection. But it, there needs to be a balance here. And as soon as you can strike that balance, I think the, the, the capital will be ready to be deployed. Mm -hmm. But it cannot be Guys, a one-sided thing. Absolutely. Yuta, thanks so much for that. We're, I'm just mindful of the clock and the, the time's gone super fast. Um, I wanted to um, thank the panelists. I want to give some time back to Rupert. So I want to thank the panelists and the viewers. As you can see, Guernsey's alive and well. It continues to be uh, resilient, innovative, flexible, and pragmatic, I think, in its approach as it continues to work to provide um, best-in-class ILS solutions and services. Uh, we look forward to seeing everyone in Zurich next year. We miss you, Zurich. Um, with that, back back over to you, Rupert. 
Great. Thanks very much, Steve. And thanks to our panel for a great discussion. Um, never missed a beat during lockdown. Um, thank you to um, a superb endorsement of the island's ILS sector um, in, in what have been obviously very difficult times. Um, it does seem that Guernsey has gone excellent USP, um, allowing the controlled flexibility of 30-day collateral rollover, clawbacks in contracts, and being able to fund contracts with partly paid shares to assist um, trap collateral. Uh, also, the development of a Guernsey green kite mark to provide credibility and accreditation to the ILS market to avoid greenwashing, uh, it seems to be absolutely key. Um, and I think the continued support of um, a solid uh, ESG credentials um, was clearly supported by the earlier poll. Um, so wrapping up uh, quickly, um, thanks again to our speakers and moderator for a really insightful discussion today. Thanks to our headline sponsors, Aon, Bedell Christian and Horseshoe, our supporter sponsors, SunTrust, the International Stock Exchange and Walkers, and our media partner, Trading Risk. Uh, thanks to the team at uh, Guernsey Finance who put this great event together. Um, I think, as we all know, ILS remains a relatively young industry where ideas are emerging and developing at speed. But at its heart is the very serious business of rebuilding shattered lives and communities after catastrophic trauma. This calls for a combination of agility, innovation, alongside high-quality professionals, regulation and governance. Um, and these lie at the heart of what Guernsey is as a finance centre. We're a small jurisdiction. We're naturally community-minded and honest. Um, it is by long-standing necessity, well, we are by long-standing necessity, resourceful. Uh, we have a high degree of innovation, and we're also agile. It's important for us to be good global citizens, to be fully aligned with global standards, concentrating on our specialist skills and services where we can offer added value, expertise, and genuine economic substance. The ESG qualities of ILS are directly aligned to where Guernsey's going in the future, and that all contributes and will continue to do so to our excellent international reputation. And finally, thanks to all of you for joining us today. Today's webinar will be available again shortly on demand, so please feel free to share that link with anybody you know and who may be interested in what was discussed today. And please do complete our survey. It is really important for us to get your feedback. But for now, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye for Guernsey. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Bye-bye.